many believe that, uh, and the evidence is there, that they are developing nuclear weapons even though they deny it. And uh, they have been trying to uh, stall with negotiations and everything. And uh, it's interesting, if you read the Jerusalem Post or some of the other Israeli newspapers, uh, that the leaders of Israel, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and uh, Defense Minister Barak are saying that uh, negotiations aren't working, they never have, and uh, matter of fact, uh, Israeli intelligence and some of the Western intelligence came out just a week or so ago saying that the progress in their nuclear uh, ambitions and technology in moving towards a nuclear weapon is happening faster than they originally thought, so they're very much as concerned. So we're hearing, and you won't pick it up so much in our uh, newspapers, but if you read the Israeli newspapers, and uh, you'll get a whole different perspective. And there is a speculation and wondering if there is going to be Israel that's going to strike the uh, Iranian nuclear power plants and uh, a military strike against Iran. And uh, there's speculation that that could happen within weeks or months. We don't know for sure. And uh, so a lot is written on it. But what is interesting is the response of Iran. And I just want to kind of give you an update on that. And uh, Israel is going to wake up uh, here because they're about nine hours ahead. But the morning headlines are going to read uh, that uh, Khomeini, the Zionist regime, regime, must disappear from the map. So their leaders are saying that Israel must be wiped out. And they have said that before, it's nothing new, but what is interesting is they continue to say this and that rhetoric is continuing to just increase. Uh, Iranian Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei said Wednesday that he was confident that the fake Zionist regime, that's Israel, will disappear from the landscape of geography, Iran's mayor new agency reported. Khomeini made the comments during a meeting with veterans of the Iran-Iraq war. The light of hope will shine on the Palestinian issue. With this Islamic land will certainly be returned to the Palestinian nation, Khomeini was quoted as saying. And then earlier on Wednesday, um, Brigadier General uh, Galali, the head of the Iran Passive Civil Defense Organization and a former commander of the Revolutionary Guards during a speech ahead, ahead of All Kurds Day, an anti-Israeli event initiated by Iran said that in order to liberate Palestine, there needs to be no other option but to destroy Israel. So what you're hearing is, is not just the President Ahmadinejad, but their cleric leaders, who are really the leaders of the nation, Khomeini, is saying that Israel must be wiped out. And here's the thing that we need to remember, that they really believe that there's going to be a last day's uh, major conflict to where Israel is going to be wiped out to usher in the 12th Iman, or that is the Islamic uh, Messiah. And the Khomeini's of Iran and the president of Iran really believe this. And this is what is shaping their foreign policy. And when they say this, they really mean it. And that's why Benjamin Netanyahu has been saying, we can't allow another Holocaust to happen. And what happened in in, in a number of years, six years, in, you know, six million Jews were killed, that all of a sudden it can happen in six minutes now with weapons of mass destruction. 
So we're watching that, and, and it's interesting. I just want you to be aware of it because these are some of the things that will be coming up, and we're watching it in light of what the Scripture has to say and the prophetic Scriptures that's going to happen in the last days. You know what? It's been interesting. My brother and I were talking about it. That is, you listen to Grace FM, and right after our radio program, of course, is uh, Pastor's Perspective, and Pastor Chuck is still talking on the radio, and he, as you listen to a man, a godly man like Pastor Chuck, that is in his 80s, that's been ministering, my ear goes up, my antenna goes up in what he is saying, and he's talking an awful lot about two things. One is Ezekiel 38, and he's talking an awful lot about, you know, the condition, the spiritual condition, which is in decline of this nation, and how much of a concern it is. And it should be a concern for us as well. So we want to continue to pray. We want to continue to watch. I'd like to update you on these things. So that's going to be in the headlines of the Jerusalem Post. You won't see it in the headlines of the United States. We're more concerned about, you know, what latest movie stars getting married or whatever it might be. So that's what we're all intrigued with and all this stuff. But in Israel, there very much is a concern and, um, and a very much speculation is... Um, you know what's going to happen in the weeks ahead. So I want to keep you updated once in a while on those things. But we do want to get into our study of 1 Kings, and we'll be in chapter 13, starting at verse 1. At this time in our study, we know that uh, Solomon has died. Uh, Solomon, who led the nation, was king during the greatest peace and prosperity and power that Israel had experienced in its history. And as you look at this, it's only been about... Um, about 100 years since Israel's had a king. You recall that it was the people that came to Samuel back in 1 Samuel chapter 8 after the days of the judges. And they said to Samuel, Samuel, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. And so Samuel would uh, anoint Saul from the tribe of Benjamin as the first king of Israel. And we know that Samuel would warn the people. He said, because you have asked for a king, this is what's going to happen, that the king is going to take your sons and your daughters. He's going to take your vineyards. He's going to take your orchards. He's going to take your wheat fields. He's going to take your cattle, your sheep. He's going to put a heavy burden on you, heavy taxations. Uh, he is going to uh, you know, be one that you're going to feel the burden of having a king in what he takes and, and his daily provision. And certainly uh, that was a warning that the people would ignore. So as Saul would be replaced by David, David, of course, he would unite the nation. David would go to war, and he would defeat his enemies all around him, those nations around him, to where David would lead the nation at the end of his life into great peace and prosperity and power. A lot of what Solomon experienced was because of David, and David would lead the nation united. David was a man after God's own heart. And as we continue through 1 Kings and into 2 Kings, we're going to see that the kings of Judah, and, and you see this in 1 and 2 Chronicles, because 1 and 2 Chronicles, which follow the books of, uh, follow the books of 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles is a lot of repeat of what we're reading here in 1 and 2 Kings, but it only talks about the kings of Judah, does not talk about the kings of Israel, and the books of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, deal a little bit more with the spiritual aspect of those kings and of the nation. So we see that those kings of Judah were compared to David, and we've seen that already so far. So here is Solomon after David reigns for 40 years. He comes on the scene, and as we saw in, in the previous studies and chapters of First Kings, 
that he built the magnificent temple. That was the first temple, Solomon's temple. He would also have all kinds of building projects, and uh, we saw that he had this you know, massive amount of, of uh, oxen and cattle and, and other things that were his daily provision. Um, David, or Solomon that is, really was a heavy burden on the people in taxing the people and uh, receiving you know, uh, animals from them and the building projects and all of this. So Solomon, of course, as we saw, uh, even though the nation was experiencing great prosperity, that at the end of his life, uh, as he accumulated all these wives, he had a thousand wives and concubines, and he began to burn incense to the foreign gods that you know were introduced to him by his foreign wives. Many of the wives that he married came from foreign nations. We discussed quite in detail how the word of God said that he was not to multiply our wives, and then second of all, he was not to marry foreign wives. Because the Lord said, they will turn your heart against me. And that's exactly what happened with Solomon. So these foreign wives that worship foreign gods and pagan gods, Solomon began to burn the incense to them and began to worship them. The Lord came to Solomon, as you recall, and said, Solomon, because you have done this, the nation is going to split. Not in your day, but in your son's day. And in chapter 11, what we saw is as Solomon's heart was turned away from the Lord, that the Lord began to raise up some adversaries against Solomon. And one of those adversaries was Jeroboam. And you recall that Jeroboam was in the leadership in Solomon's administration. He was called a mighty man of valor. He was a great builder but yet he became an adversary of Solomon. He would end up going to Egypt, and when he heard that Solomon had died, the people of Israel would bring Jeroboam back. And Solomon passes away after 40 years of reigning. So when you compare him to David, David, 40 years of reigning, would bring the nation into great peace and prosperity and power. Solomon, he would leave the nation divided, and where idol worship is once again introduced into the nation. And so Rehoboam, Solomon's son, becomes the king. And the people with Jeroboam being their representative would come to uh, Rehoboam and say, listen, your father taxed us heavily. He, he was a great burden to us. Can you ease up a bit on the taxation and the daily provisions and all the building projects and all of this? And Rehoboam, you recall, as we saw in the previous chapter, that is chapter 12, would say to the people, I'm going to consult my advisors, come back in three days. And as you recall that last week, we read that it was Rehoboam, Solomon's son, that went to the elders who advised his father Solomon and said, what should I do? How should I answer the people? And those wise men said, listen, ease up, serve the people, be good to them. And if you are good to them and serve them, then you're going to see that the people are going to be good to you. And of course, you and I as Christians, we are told by the Lord that we're to be the servant of all. We're not to rule over people with a heavy hand. Uh, we're not to try to dominate people. But Jesus said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then be the servant of all. And that's the way for us to be great in the kingdom, to humble ourselves, to, to look out for other interests, not only for our own interests, and also be serving others as well. So it was Rehoboam, when he heard that advice, rejected it. He said, no way. He went to the younger advisors, these guys that he grew up with, and said, what should I do? And they said, you need to go back to the people and tell them they haven't seen anything yet. If you think my father was bad, I'm really going to be bad. 
and I'm really going to lay it on you, and things are going to be even tougher. So what happened, as we saw last week, that it was um, the uh, ten northern tribes that would split away from the house of David, and they became now known as the house of Israel, the ten northern tribes. And now what you have in this split of the nation is the house of Israel, as I mentioned, and then down south, the house of Judah, which is the tribe of Judah, along with the tribe of Benjamin. The, the house of Judah, the capital being still Jerusalem with the temple there. And you recall when uh, the house of Israel split away from you know, the house of Judah, that they would make Jeroboam their first king. Jeroboam, what he does as we ended last week, is that he didn't want the people to go to Jerusalem. He didn't want them traveling there because he knew that if they went to Jerusalem, to the beautiful temple and, and to the feast, that they would want to unite once again with their brethren. So he said, don't go to Jerusalem. It's too inconvenient for you to go. You know, one of the tricks that the enemy will do is that he will try to get you to think, it's too inconvenient to go to church. You know, don't, don't go. And I want to commend you for coming out on a Wednesday night because it's not always easy coming out on Wednesday nights for you guys. Some of you have been working all day. It's been a long day. It's hard. You're trying to you know, get dinner going, um, get the kids fed. It takes a little bit of effort to come on Wednesday nights. It's the middle of the week, and it's very easy to just stay at home. But one of the things that the enemy will try to get us to think is it's too inconvenient to go to church or be in fellowship or Go to Bible study or go to men's prayer on Saturday morning. That's my time to, to sleep in. And so we need to be aware of that. So he would say, Jeroboam, don't go down to Jerusalem. You know, don't go there because it's too inconvenient. What I'm going to do is build two temples dedicated to the golden calf. One in the northern part of the country, Dan, and one in Bethel, which is down towards the border of where Judah and Israel would meet. And you can go worship there, and you worship at those pagan temples there dedicated to the golden calf. And so the house of Israel was plunged deep into idol worship, and uh, we're going to see that it's going to continue. So that's what's taking place. So let's go into chapter 13, and we see an interesting story is told to us here. And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord, and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. And so this man of God that comes from Judah, that is down in the southern part um, of you know, the, the house of Judah, down south, he, he comes up north to Bethel, where one of these temples dedicated to the golden calf was made. And there's Jeroboam. He's burning incense on his pagan you know, altar to a pagan idol that he had built. And all of a sudden, this prophet comes. It doesn't name him by name. It just says that a man of God went from Judah to Bethel. And I just want to stop and, and have you consider this, because Perhaps as you go through life, you may think, well, nobody really knows my name. You know, at work, they don't know my name. Uh, maybe in the neighborhood or, or I don't have a whole lot of friends. You may feel like that you're not in the who's who of the world or in society or a whole lot of people don't know your name. But one thing that I pray and hope that people would know is that you're a man or you're a woman of God. 
they, they would say, you know, I don't know who they are, but I know they, they believe in God, and it shows in their life. And they have a devotion to God, and they, they are ones that walk after the ways of the Lord. They know there's something real about your Christianity because they see it worked out in your life. And rather than somebody knowing me by name, I'd rather have them know me that I'm a man of God. That's what I want to be known as. And I hope you do as well. So this man of God comes and, and he gives this prophecy. Uh, a man, Josiah, is going to be born and will come and judgment's going to come to this altar, to this place. Now we're going to see when we get to Second Kings chapter 23 that that prophecy is going to be fulfilled many, many years after this is taking place in chapter 13, hundreds of years later. So Josiah, he would come on the scene. He's the last of the good kings in Judah. It was after the house of Israel was already taken off into captivity. And so the house of Judah remained. And we know that when the Babylonians were becoming very strong, that it was Josiah who was the last of the good kings, godly kings in the house of Judah before the Babylonian captivity. He would bring a last revival to the land. But what he ended up doing is he would order that this altar be destroyed, thus fulfilling uh, the prophecy that was given by this prophet. So the prophecy is given in verse 3. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So it came to pass, when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Arrest him. Then his hand, which he stretched out towards him, withered, so he could not pull it back to himself. And the altar also was split apart, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. So a sign was given to confirm the prophet's words. And when Jeroboam would say, arrest this guy, take this guy away, and he reached out and his hand withered up and the altar split in two. And Jeroboam, as he heard what this, this prophet was saying, this man of God was saying, he was trying to silence the message of this man rather than responding to the message that God had given. You see, we have a choice, don't we? People have a choice. To either respond to the gospel, the good news, and to the truth of God's word, or to reject it. To, to respond to it or try to silence it. We know that in our society today that there are people out there that they don't want to hear the truth of the gospel. Uh, they don't want to hear um, it at all, so they try to silence it to some you know, success where they don't want it to be heard in the schools, they don't want it to be heard in the government, they don't want it to be heard, you, know, you can't say prayers at all in public, and there are those who are trying to silence any kind of truth that is being proclaimed. And you and I are going to see that, and I think it's going to increase as this country continues to just get away further away from the Lord. There are those who come along and say, you can't speak about the Bible, you can't talk about the Lord. And that's the pressure that you and I are going to sense and feel as we get closer to the return of the Lord. Do you know that? That people are trying to silence the truth of the gospel and what you and I proclaim as the truth of God's word. It is no different than what the early apostles went through as you read the book of Acts. Remember in Acts chapter 4, 
that they're in Jerusalem and they're preaching Jesus and people are getting saved. And it was the Sanhedrin council that arrested them and, and told those apostles, quit spreading the name of Jesus in this city. You filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. I, I love that verse. Because you guys have been preaching the truth and, and the gospel, that you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, with the name of Jesus. Wouldn't that be marvelous to say of this church and other Christians that we filled Greeley with the name of Jesus Christ? And, and we are. We're doing that with the radio program that's going out not only across uh, Greeley, Colorado, but northern Colorado and the Denver area with Grace FM and the other Calvary Chapel pastors that uh, are teaching the word of God. It's wonderful to see it, how how this city in, in northern Colorado is being filled with the gospel message and the truth of God's word. And I pray that it continues, but not just with the radio program, but with this church. And that we would be ones, as we leave these four walls, that we know that we have opportunity to share the good news with others. But there will be those who will try to silence you. And you recall, they tried to do it with the apostles and the Jewish Supreme Court that had brought them before that, you know, to stand before them said, stop doing that and, and stop proclaiming the name of Jesus. And it was the apostles that said, we're not going to do that. If we're going to, you know, have the choice between obeying God and man, we're going to obey God. And how can we not proclaim what we have seen and heard? And there is no other name under heaven in which a man must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. And they were determined that they were going to continue to preach and be a witness and that's what I pray that our determination is because people need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the truth. And that's one of the reasons why I give opportunity for people to come to Jesus at our services. I want people to respond. They're either going to you respond to the gospel or you're going to reject it. Make sure people know who Jesus is, the Son of God. God in the person of Jesus Christ, the revelation of God through Jesus Christ came to this world. What he did for us, he went to Calvary's cross and died on the cross for you and for me. Why did he do that? Because we're sinners and we've all sinned and we need his forgiveness and his provision that he has made for us as he died on the cross of Calvary, dying in place of us. And that he rose again after three days. And to have people, they're either going to respond to it or reject it. There's no other salvation. And so we want to give that clear message. And here was a message that was given to Jeroboam. He rejects it. He tries to silence it and, um, rather than responding to it. He's not interested in, in what the man of God has to say. He ignores it. He's trying to rebel against the message. And we see that um, as he does that, verse 6, then the king answered, or, and, and as he stretched out his hand, his hand became as uh, withered and um, he couldn't pull it back. So the altar split apart. In verse 6, then the king answered and said to the man of God, please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and became as before. So uh, it, it's interesting, isn't it? The response of Jeroboam, hey, I'm, I'm going to reject your message arrest him and all of a sudden his hands wither and then what does he do he cries out to the man of God and said pray to your God that my hand will be healed isn't that kind of strange it's kind of interesting isn't it 
But there's a couple of points for us to consider as we, as we read verse 6 here, because number one, you see that Jeroboam, he, he says, pray to your God that I'll receive healing. My question is, is why don't you pray to your golden calf over there? If you're burning incense to him and worshiping him, why don't you pray to him? And that's something we're going to see as we continue through First and Second Kings. And then as you read the books of the prophets, as Isaiah comes on the scene, and then Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel, and the minor prophets that we have in the back of the, of the Old Testament, they would come on the scene, and what they would do is uh, they would tell the people, turn back to God, get rid of your idols. And one of the points that they would make is, is that the idols that you're worshiping cannot help you. They're not going to help you in your time of trouble. They would go through drought. They would go through locust infestations. They would be defeated by their enemies. They would find themselves in captivity. And those idols could not help them at all in any of their problems. And that's why it was the prophets that came on the scene and said, Turn to the Lord. He's the true God. He's the one that brought you out of Egypt. He's the one that has brought blessing to you. He's the one that's given you the land. He is the creator. Why are you worshiping the created? And you're worshiping an idol that has ears but can't hear, eyes that can't see, a mouth that can't speak. You have to tote this idol around. It's foolishness. This idol's not going to help you. And we can think about that and say, yeah, how dumb is that? Carrying around a little idol thinking that that wooden idol or that metal idol is going to help. But we can do the same thing. You see, if we're not careful, we begin to trust in, in other things. And we begin to trust, and people do today, of course, but, but we need to be careful as Christians that we're not just trusting in our bank accounts or in our intellect or just trusting in our abilities or our possessions or our hobbies and all of this. Because, you see, in our hour of need, in our true hour of need, only the Lord is going to be able to help us. And we need to stay devoted to him and committed to him. That as we were singing tonight, you are everything to me, Lord. You're the priority of my life over every area of my life. And I trust in you alone because, you see, the riches can go away, can't they? We saw that very clearly over the last few years with the stock market crashing. And people lost their retirements, or a lot of it, or, you know, lost money. And how quickly it can go away, just as Jesus said that the earthly treasures can rust away or go away or whatever it may be. We saw people lose their possessions, you know, unfortunately, and it's sad to see in the fires that went through Colorado. We know that our health can go south at, at any moment. We don't know what tomorrow holds. So we want to make sure that, Lord, you are the priority of my life in every area of my life. Nothing else has priority. I trust in you. And I'm thankful for what I have, my possessions. I thank you for my intellect. I thank you for my health. Of course we are thankful for that. But Lord, you are truly Lord over everything. So here's Jeroboam. He cries out, and those idols aren't going to help him. He's not desiring repentance. He's not desiring to turn to the Lord at this time. Truly, he just has a worldly sorrow. He's only just sorry for the consequences that he is experiencing. And you see, that happens to a lot of people as well. People can say, oh, I'm sorry for, 
you know, when I'm experiencing the consequences, but not truly repented towards the Lord. And I want to remind you of a verse that we went over not long ago in our study of Second Corinthians. But Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, but uh, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. There's worldly sorrow and there's godly repentance. And godly repentance is going to lead to a turning to the Lord truly. But a worldly sorrow is just going to, as he says here um, in, in, in verse 10, the sorrow of the world produces death. It just, to us in our souls and in our spirit, and um, it's just, there's a worldly sorrow that doesn't do a whole lot. It's a worldly sorrow that just says, I'm sorry for getting caught or the consequences that I'm going through. And that's what Jeroboam is experiencing. So here he, he says, pray for me. And so verse 7, the king said to the man of God, come home with me and, and, and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. Because we know that he was healed as, as the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him. So here's Jeroboam, come home, eat with me. You know, I want to reward you. And, and then we read, in um, verse 8, but the man of God said to the king, if you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so I was commanded, it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, verse 9, saying, you shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way and did uh, not return by the way he came to Bethel. So keep that in mind what was said in verse 9. Here's Jeroboam. He says, come home with me. Hey, you healed my hand. Thank you. I want to reward you. I want to refresh you. Give you something to eat. And the man of God, this prophet says, I can't go because the command of God, the word of the Lord to me is I'm not to eat bread or to drink. I'm to go home to Judah by a different way. So now the story gets interesting as we read in verse 11. Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went, who came from Judah. And then he said to the sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode on it. Here is the story that continues. Here's an old prophet. He wants to have fellowship with this young prophet. Uh, the old prophet, his sons, uh, they're there in Bethel. They come back and said, hey, you wouldn't believe this guy, you know, prophet, young prophet from Judah comes up. He gives his word to Jeroboam and his, you know, Jeroboam tries to grab him, but his hands withered and so he prays for him, the prophet, and his hand is restored. And it was amazing. And the altar split and all of this. And the old prophet hears it and he says, hey, which way did he go? Well, he went that way. Well, saddle my donkey. I'm going to go after him. And verse 14, and he went after the man of God and found him sitting under oak. And then he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. And he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I cannot return with you nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, verse 17, you shall not eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. He said to him, verse 18, this is the old, older prophet, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. He was lying to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. 
So here the old prophet catches up with the, the young prophet. He says, hey, I heard what happened. Why don't you come home and eat with me and drink with me, have dinner with me? And the prophet, the young prophet says, I can't do that, verse 17. I've been told by the word of the Lord that I'm not to do that and to go home by a different way. And then verse 18, the old prophet says, well, that's okay because I'm a prophet too. And an angel of the Lord came to me and said, you can come and have dinner with me and eat with me and drink with me. It's okay if you do that. So he says, okay, he gets up and I'll go have dinner. That's what he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. And now the story even gets more interesting. Now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread, and drank water in this place of which the Lord said to you, Eat no bread, drink no water, your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And so it was after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. When he had gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his corpse was thrown on the road, and the donkey stood by it, and the lion also stood by the corpse. And there men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road, and the lion standing by the corpse. And they went and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, all of a sudden, the young guy says, okay, I'll come eat with you since you're a prophet. Why would he think that he was a prophet or telling the truth? And this is really important for us to understand. I think the first reason, obviously, is as we look at this is because he says, I am a prophet. It's amazing how somebody can say, well, I'm a prophet of the Lord. And people go, oh, really? You're a prophet? Yeah, I'm a prophet of the Lord. It's okay. Thus saith the Lord. And people will automatically believe that. Second of all, I believe that this young guy believed, you know, and, and listened to the lie because this old prophet claimed to have something spectacular happen, supernatural happen. An angel came to me and told me it's okay. Really? And you see, the same thing can happen today. There are those who will stand up and say that they speak on behalf of the Lord and claim supernatural signs and all of this, and people just get all excited about that. But you and I know that, that Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament would warn against false apostles and prophets that would come on the scene and teachers. And it would increase in the last days. And we are told in John's epistle that we are to test the spirits to see if they are true, if they are of God. So the question is, how do you test the spirits? See, he didn't test the spirits. Or if he did test the spirits, it was, oh, you know, this guy claims to be a prophet. And then second of all, we see that he claims a supernatural sign. The way to tell if a prophecy is true, because we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're to judge prophecy, aren't we? We're to be wise and we're to be discerning. Again, Jesus and the apostles warned that there will be many false prophets in the last days. Not a few, but many of them will come on the scene. So we test the spirits, we know by the word of God. And that's the key here. Didn't he violate the word of God that came to him? He did. The word of God came to him and said, don't go to anyone's house and eat bread and drink and go home a different way, period. That's very easy to understand. 
And here this guy comes along and says, well, I'm a prophet, really? Yeah, I saw an angel, and he came and said, it's okay, he was lying. And he says, really, a supernatural sign? Okay, I'll go eat with you. But he violated the word of God that was given to him. That's what I love about the word of God. The word of God doesn't change. And as Proverbs chapter 1, verse 33 says, that there is safety in the word of God, in, in God's wisdom. That from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, it's the same. It doesn't change. His word will last forever. And God doesn't come along and change his word. And what is amazing about the Bible is one you know, harmonious message that we have given to us. It doesn't conflict. It's not confusing, but God's word is clear to us. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you can read God's word because all of it is inspired by God. God breathed, as Paul would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And it is profitable to you and to me for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. And we can trust the word of God. And we filter everything through the word of God. And we need to understand that because we also know that the false prophets in the last days that will come on the scene uh, will have signs and wonders. And we know that the time is going to come in the very last days, in the last seven-year period called the tribulation period, that one's going to come on the scene. It's going to seem like he speaks great things according to the world. He's called the man of sin, the son of perdition. He's called the Antichrist. He's going to amaze the world with the words that he speaks, but they are words against God and blasphemy against God. And he's going to come as an angel of light. You remember that Paul writing in 2 Corinthians said that Satan can transform himself into an angel of light. And he is this man of sin, this antichrist, as Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, is going to deceive many by lying signs and wonders. Folks, we've got to be wise and discerning in the days in which we're living in. And that's why it is, and I know I sound like a broken record, but as long as I am teaching, I'm going to remind you of this constantly and consistently. You've got to know the Word of God and filter everything that is being said through the Word of God. Remember on Sunday we talked about in James that teachers will be held at a stricter judgment? And that's not just before God, but it should be before others as well. What I say, you should take it and filter it through the Word of God. And it should stand the test of, of the Word of God. And that's where there's safety, and that's where there's wisdom and discernment. So this guy violated that. And what happened? Well, all of a sudden, this lion pounces on him and, and kills him. And he's laying there. The donkey is there. The lion's laying there. People are seeing this. They go back to Bethel and said, we saw this strange sight. There's a lion laying there. He hasn't eaten the guy. He hasn't eaten the donkey. But the lion pounced on him. Listen. Satan is a deceiver. He's called the father of lies. And he is going to try any way that he can to deceive you and me. And as we're going to see again on Sunday in the book of James, to submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Just submit to the word of God, to the Lord, and, and come to him and know the word of God. And filter everything through. When I was reading this, it, it reminds me, this guy says, an angel came. It's amazing how people would just accept any kind of supernatural you know, claim or vision that somebody has. And it's like, really? Galatians chapter 1, doesn't it remind you that it was Paul that said, as he would write to the Galatian churches, he said, I marvel that you move away to another gospel, which isn't the gospel. 
And he says, if we, or anybody else, that is, or even an angel, come and preaches another gospel which we have brought to you, then let them be accursed. And he repeats it. He says, even if an angel comes and gives you another gospel, another message than what we've given to you, then let that angel be accursed. And that's what happened here. This guy saying, well, an angel came. He claimed he was lying. But it's interesting, even today, there are those who will say, well, an angel came, or spirit came and told me this. Really? There's the Mormon church that they believe that they will tell you that Joseph Smith got a visit from the angel Moroni. And he came and he has another gospel to give. It's buried in the hills of New York. Reform Egyptian hydroglyphics on, on golden you know, plates. And it's like Paul was looking down through the space of time 2,000 years later. And he's warning the people, even if an angel comes with another gospel, let that angel be accursed. We need to be careful, folks. And we need to be wise and discerning and pass everything through the word of God. And know this, that the enemy Satan's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he's going to try to pull you away from the truth of God's word and pull you into his territory so he can pounce on you. And do you win? Just as this, this prophet was done in. So the story continues. We'll finish tonight. And then when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard it, he said, is it the man of God who was disobedient to the word of the Lord? Therefore the Lord has delivered him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. And he spoke to his son, saying, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled it. Verse 28, Then he went and found his corpse thrown on the road, and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse, and the lion had not eaten the corpse, nor torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, and brought it back. So the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. And verse 30, Then he laid the corpse on his own tomb, and they mourned over uh, him, saying, Alas, my brother. So it was that after he had buried him, that he spoke to his son, saying, When I am dead, then bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried, laid my bones beside his bones. And for the saying which he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel, and against all the shrines of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria, will surely come to pass. And so we see he goes, the old prophet, he um, comes and he he gets this guy and, and uh, has him buried, and he says, When I die, bury my bones beside his bones. And in verse 33, after this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but again he made priests from every class of people for the high places. Whoever um, wished, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam, so as to exterminate and to destroy it from the face of the earth. Father, we thank you for this time. And Lord, we just pray that, um, that tonight, as we've gone quickly over this chapter, that we're reminded of some very important principles, and that is to be ones that are teachable, that we wouldn't try to... to reject a message that you give to us as Jeroboam did. We know his heart wasn't right. But Lord, that we would always be open and teachable to your message, to your truth. And Lord, that we wouldn't be discouraged as this man brought a message to Jeroboam, a prophecy, that Lord, we wouldn't be discouraged in the days in which we're living in 
to bring the good news to others. Because we know the world will try to silence us. The world will come against us. But Lord, we know how the world needs to desperately know the truth of the gospel. That Jesus Christ has come to give us life. And if there is anyone here, if you've never responded to the gospel, we want to remind you of it once again. That Jesus, the Son of God, came and died for you on Calvary's cross. He said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And he died for every one of your sins. He loves you. And forgiveness is possible. It's been provided. All you have to do is come in faith and realize that Jesus Christ was put into a grave and he rose again after three days and he's alive. He's alive. And he has saved you from death, from sin. And he desires to save you tonight if you've never given your heart to him. Open up your heart to him. It's the message, the gospel. Either you're going to respond to it or reject it. And I pray that no one here in this building has rejected that. If you've never accepted it, that you would consider it tonight. And you would pray right where you're sitting, realizing that today's the day of salvation. I need you, Jesus. There's no hope apart from you. And he wants to make a new creation out of you for you to be born again by the Spirit of God. And not only just saving you, which is, oh, what a tremendous blessing in forgiving you, but making you a new creature in Christ. Taking the guilt and the shame away. And just filling you with his Holy Spirit to where there's joy and peace and true happiness in your life. Doesn't mean all your problems will go away. Doesn't mean that, that you won't experience difficulties, but Jesus is with you. And he's everything for you. You first come to him. That's the first thing to do. Surrender your heart to him. If you've never done that, you pray, Jesus, I believe that you're the son of God who died for me. Thank you for dying for me because I know that I am a sinner and I confess it. And I turn to you now and I give you my heart and my life. Be my personal Lord and Savior. I believe that you rose from the grave. And I am forgiven as I come in faith, believing in my heart. I surrender to you. I give you my life. Help me to live for you all the days of my life. And if you prayed that prayer, the promise of Scripture is that you will be saved, that you belong to the family of God. And you come up and receive prayer after his service.